Welcome back to Nitty in the City, where we bring you the second of a two-part episode centered around Black women's self-care and wellness. At this point, we got a question from one of the audience members, and then we're going to continue to delve into this topic. So I hope you continue to enjoy this episode about Black women's self-care and wellness. All right, we actually got our first question from the audience. Nitty in the City has to today. to my 15-year-old self starting early. And you know, I, I, not even my 15-year-old self, because when I meet other 15-year-olds, I'm telling them everything that I would have told my 15-year-old self. Mm-hmm. But uh, self-validation. You don't need to appease everyone mm-hmm. or fit into the box of what others expect of you. I think that th- that could have saved me so much heartache, um, poor relationships, friendships even, right? Because it's not just the romantic relationships that you have to, you know, let go of for your own personal, your self-health. Sometimes it can be those platonic relationships as well, but being okay in your own skin and knowing that you need to seek yourself for that validation instead of looking for it on the outside, um, I think it can save you a, a lot of trouble in, in, in being able to self-validate. I, mean, I want everybody up here to give a chime in on that. I'm not going to lie. That was yeah, great. That's a good one. great question. Mm-hmm. I'll go. Um, God, my 15-year-old self. Um, okay, so self-respect, not that, I didn't, not that I didn't have it, but I don't think I understood to the full extent of exactly what self-respect is. And that can go along the lines of jumping from relationship to relationship. Um, I had the typical preacher's kid rebellion, um, which is one of the reasons why I had a daughter at 17. Um, You know, just being able to kind of, like you just said, be okay and comfortable in your own skin, not always looking or comparing yourself to someone else, thinking that I should be like that or I want that, but being okay with what you know you have. Um, so yeah, maybe just telling my 15-year-old self to like slow down, actually enjoy life, not always looking so far ahead into the future, but enjoying the moment that you're in right now. And I probably the biggest thing would be any type of trial, tribulation, mistake, make sure you actually learn something if it's one thing from whatever that situation was so that you're not repeating it or you can handle it better the next time if it does come around again I would say little girl little girl (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned I think maybe I just nodded when Tracy mentioned that she was from southern Delaware because I'm also from Sussex County which is a very small pond and (laughs) Um, you know, I was high performing, ended up being like salutatory in my class and kind of had a couple, you know, acknowledgements where I was the first black this or like the first black female of this. So big fish, small pond though, right? And there was so much 
feedback for me about what I should do or could do. And I ended up, believe it or not, starting with the University of Delaware as an engineering major. And I look, because people said, you're good at math and science. You should be an engineer. There's not very many black female engineers, and you'll make a lot of money. But some of the things that I love the most about myself now that I believe relate to my purpose and passion, I had then. And I didn't exactly really realize it. And none of those things said engineer. Like none of them. Everyone knows I talk a lot, I'm bubbly and happy. But no one would say those are engineer qualities. Right. 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 Happy engineers in college, you're right. <laughs> so right. how did I end up as an engineer? You know, that was one of those what people say you should do. And I kind of fed into it, got the full scholarship, shout out to UD, <laughs> took it, and then like so many other people got there and completely changed my major to something totally different. And so I would definitely say, I would ask over the course of this lunch, like, what are those things that you love about yourself? Mm -hmm. What are those things that come easy to you? What are those things that make you happy when there's no one else around, when there's no one else to comment? And, you know, hold fast to those things and follow those things. That's what I would say. Tracy? Wow. Um, I, don't, I, I think I would tell myself, um, one, you know, get out of your shell. And, um, you know, again, just being from Sussex County, like you, you're just, you're, you're not even who you are. You're, you're part of a family. Like, oh, you're, you're part, oh, you're part of that family. Okay, we know who your people are. Um, so, I, I would just, I literally would just have a conversation with myself and be like, what makes you happy? Um, and, and I know this sounds so cliche, but, you know, just laugh more just live it up like I I think I was just so worried about what other people would say about me or mm -hmm. or run back and say to my mom or my aunties or my grandma or whatever um and then you know like again very cliche but just just dance like just enjoy life like just just live it up and and you know be responsible but I think that's what I would I would tell myself and and just be in the moment and just enjoy it. Real quick before we go to shot, you know, all these things you've had to tell your daughter? I tell, yes, I tell, mm -hmm. and you know, we have to tell our kids, we have to have different conversations with our children mm -hmm. than other cultures do, right? Okay. So, but I do, I, I tell my daughter, um, I tell her every day, you're beautiful. And you know, it's different when it comes from a mom than when it comes from a dad. But I tell her every day, you're beautiful, you're gorgeous, you're smart, you're intelligent. Um, you are and and I love how my daughter's personality is to, totally different than mine and I tell her that I was like you're so not my child I said I love you for that but you're so not my child because my daughter is so outgoing and she has a great personality I mean I do too once I warm up to you but <laughs> um but I, I think she is just just the girl that everyone wants to, to flock to and I also tell her to to protect herself so people will, will, people gravitate to your energy and they'll start sucking it away and said, protect that. Um, so, so these are, yes, these are all the things that I tell my daughter now. I, I've been telling her as well as, you know, like keep your hands out your pocket when you're in the store and, <laughs> you know, like crazy things like that, right? That we have to tell our kids and yeah. other people don't. But, but yeah, so those are the conversations that I have um, mm -hmm. with my daughter. Yeah, even now. Shot? Wow. Um, <laughs> what I would tell my 15-year-old self, 
One of the main things I would tell myself is be free. It's not that serious. Um, I think that when I was a teenager, I had this idea of what I was supposed to be. So, like for example, I went to Morgan State University and I was a business major okay. and transferred to University of Delaware and was still a business major and literally graduated with a degree in Black American Studies, <laughs> a degree in Ethnic and Cultural Studies, and a degree in English. What does that have to do with business? I don't know. But my family. About the business of black folk. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I am uh, the executive director of a nonprofit now, so that is business. Mm -hmm. But my nonprofit is Culture Restoration Project because I'm all about culture for people of color. Mm -hmm. And I'm all about um, youth education. So, really, that has nothing to do with business, but I am running a business. So, mm -hmm. there is some sort of connection, but overall, nah, business wasn't me, but I felt like that's where I needed to go because I literally come from a family of entrepreneurs. I had a grand, my grandfather owned a farm, he owned a used car dealership, he was one of the first black men in Wilmington, Delaware to have a used car lot. Um, he had a whole fleet of trucks. Where was the farm? The farm is in Maryland. Okay, I'm yeah, it's not, it's not <laughs> But it's in Maryland. Um, but he had a whole fleet of trucks, he had a construction company, and then my dad did the same thing. And then my sister had her own business where she was, um, she, it was a technology business that morphed into youth education. Everyone had their own business. Like, that's just what I saw. So I thought I was supposed to do the same, which technically I have, but I looked at it strictly as business. And I took that very seriously. And I think that I wasted a lot of time doing things that I didn't really want to do. And it was because I just took it too seriously and I wasn't free to be me. I was stuck in this box of what people thought that I should be. And in addition to that, I was also um, stuck in the boxes that people put me in. So it was always expected that I got good grades. Like I didn't even comprehend the idea of not getting good grades because that just wasn't a part of my life. My sister went to Padua. She went, you know what I mean? She was in private school and she got good grades and she went to college and that was supposed to be me. And really that wasn't me. Like when I look back, even though I do appreciate my time in college and I love my degrees because that's how you make your money, I think that I could have still been successful not going that route, but I did it because that was the expectation for me. And I'm just lucky enough that while I was going down that route in college, I found something that really resonated with me. But I do think that I could have found it another way as well. It just worked out for me. But for some young girls, being free and being who you are and understanding who you are and accepting that and also listening to adults and your elders because you're still young, you don't know everything, but just making sure that those adults and those elders that are speaking to you are speaking life into who you are, not speaking their life into you. Yes. Yeah. Because then you become what they want you to be and that's not you. Yeah. So I think that I, I would tell myself to be free and leave them boys alone. <laughs> listen, yes. they ain't nowhere around right now. Like that was a lot of wasted time and a lot of wasted energy and a lot of wasted emotions. So that's what I would tell my 15 year old self. Okay, so now I'm gonna leave it down there for a second because you brought up something that uh, actually I was gonna touch on. You mentioned your college experiences. Now, you're gonna be able to actually probably answer both sides of this question. 
But I mean, everybody has to. The reason I say this is because, well, I know you and Tracy, y'all, Morgan and uh, Dell State, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Um, UD, predominantly white university. Eric, I don't know where you're at. Uh, Westchester and Immaculata. Man, and we go back so far. <laughs> uh, PWIs as well, right? So of course, I'm talking about this, people might automatically be like, well, I'm sure we know what the black folk went through at the white schools, yada, 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 yada. And they're probably like, well, that's why the black folks should go to the black schools. They ain't gonna have no issues at the black schools, no nothing to deal with the traumas or nothing. They, they won't have any instances that will impact them adversely as it pertains to self-care uh, and wellness because the black kids are in black schools and that's how it should be, right? So. Let's start with your Morgan State uh, University. First of all, you shook your head, so I'm going to assume that's not true. That was a real crazy generalization. So can you give us an example of some issues that uh, a black woman can, can may or have faced or that you may have faced going to an HBCU that other people probably think wouldn't even have been an issue? You mean in terms of? of like, and uh, the same way how we say, you know, things going on in society kind of affect our self-care, like whether you see in the media, you know, things that happen to our people, or if you look in the media, you know, uh, a lot, of, for the years, the media would just basically tell you white is right, and you know, black is whack, and yada, yada, yada. And then so when people talk about, I'm going to you, they like, what you want to go to that white school for? Because your white folk ain't gonna treat you right, you just gonna, you gonna deal with nonsense. Go to a black school, because you're gonna be enriched and not deal with nonsense. So, okay. Because I went to both, I will say this. Um, first of all, an HBCU that is accredited is part of the same system that a UD is a part of. It's the same, it's the same system. It's just, it's history, is that it's a historically black college or university, uh, which based on that history, today there's still majority students of color at those schools. So I do like to clarify that because the system is somewhat still the same. So going to an HBCU, um, I have to be honest, you're still getting a Eurocentric education. Okay. You are, point blank period. The only difference is it connects more to us because um, the, most of the students look like us. So mm -hmm. that's like being with your family. Uh, the professors are like <laughs> us in some cases, not all the time, but there's a lot more black professors um, and Latino professors at these schools. So we have that connection. But at the end of the day, it's still a Eurocentric education. And I believe that when you come from a Eurocentric perspective in anything dealing with people of color, you are traumatized because you're not getting the perspective that you need. And some people look at education as one of those things where it's just education. So you learn math, Math is math is math. It doesn't matter the perspective. And I would have to say, nah, that's not true because you can learn things about math from a Greek perspective or you can learn it from an Egyptian perspective. And if you learn it from an Egyptian perspective and you're able to connect it to Africa and maybe where your people are from or you connect it to um, you know, the Aztecs or something like that, that gives you more of an idea that this field of mathematics came from me. It came from my people. Mm -hmm. It came from my lineage, as opposed to it came from somewhere else and they're teaching me that. So when, it, when, you're, when you're learning things and you're experiencing things from a Eurocentric point of view, 
it has these subtle traumas that are thrown on you because you're never looking at it as part of you. You're looking at it as something that's being imposed on you. And so, um, you know, I think that that does happen to HBCUs too. So that's definitely, there's no difference there. But when I was at an HBCU, when I was at Morgan State, I feel like I had, I had better self-care practices because I was around other black women. So we kind of looked out for each other. When I was at UD, it wasn't as many people around me that was looking out for me and that I could look out for. So I had to do that outside of my college experience with my family and other friends. But um, I think that that's important to have people that can relate to you to help you with your self-care. And here's an example, and this is a, you know, a superficial thing, but you know, if you're at UD and you're around a bunch of white girls, they may not be able to call you on your hair. Like, mm -hmm. okay, sis, you need a trim. Your hair, like, your hair is shedding. Like, mm -hmm. let's let's talk about this. Like, let, like, I noticed that you're having this issue or I noticed that, you know, your skin not right. Like, what you been eating? You know what I mean? Like, there's a way that you can talk to your sister friend that you can't talk to someone outside of your race. And that does help you with your self-care because what you need in self-care is not always determined by you. Right. I know people's moms call them all the time be like, girl, what would you wear? What would you doing? What would you eat? And like, what were you thinking? Like, your mom, your aunt, your grandma, like, they'll call you on stuff like that. And so do your friends. So I think that that is... That's a benefit of being at an HBCU, but the education part and how you learn and those experiences, they're, you know, mm -hmm. they're kind of the same across the board other than that connection with the people that are there. Okay. Uh, Tracy, you're going to bring it on over to your HBCU. Uh, I'm at Delaware State University. The Shout out to the Hornets. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? So, again, kind of what I said to Shad, you know, you know, people like, go to black school, everything's all right. Everything's cool, you know. So I, I think a lot of our education happened after hours. Um, okay. I, I, you know, again, we got we got our biology, we got our mathematics, we got our English, but a lot of that happened after hours. Whether you were with your um, advisor, or other students, or even just professors who were in the area, you know, like, hey, he's pretty cool. Let's let's talk. So a lot of a lot of the additional education came after hours, not during the regular, um, you know, school day, right, or traditional blocks of, of education. Um, but again, you know, even though it's an HBCU, I most of my professors were Caucasian, um, and because I, after I changed my major a million times, um, some of them didn't like law enforcement. And that's the profession that, that a lot of us were, were trying mm -hmm. to, to get in. So how is it that you have folks who don't like us, don't like the profession, but they're teaching you about the profession? Oh, wow. Yeah, so, so you have kind of like that paradox of, you know, hey, I want to go into this, but they're really not pushing you mm -hmm. to go into that profession. Um, but, but again, I, I had some of my most meaningful conversations with um, Dr. Aka, who, you know, God rest his soul, he passed away many years after, um, after I left, but he still made an impact on me. Um, and he was just one of those professors that you could go and talk to him about anything, 
and he would sit down and he would stop whatever it was that he was doing and, and he'd talk to you. That man didn't know me. Mm -hmm. He didn't know me from a can of paint, but I was one of his students. Um, but he would sit down and, and engage in a conversation with us. So, you know, and we we have to we have to talk about it, but college is now a business. It's not just to educate folks anymore. We mm -hmm. talk you know, I don't, I don't be like um, AI, but you talk about money. Like, <laughs> we are talking about money right now. Um, and so these kids go into school not even understanding whether it's an HBCU or PWI. We talk about money, y'all. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you're going to get your education, but we're talking about money. Okay. So, so it doesn't matter if it's a PWI or if it's an HBCU. You're still talking about getting a degree, which is going to cost you some money. And that's not even, that's barely even entry level for some um, professions nowadays but your education is definitely for me I felt was was not during the school year I'm sorry not during the school blocks it was you know after hours with your girlfriends with your advisors with other professors um, that were mentors and I think that's what you know again these students need they need mentors to try and, and direct them um, to the right right path no doubt. Now let's take it on over to this uh, predominantly white institution <laughs> as the University of Delaware <laughs> um, to these two blue heads. So um, now I don't know, you know, what everybody's high school experience was like. Only reason I say that is because, well, at least for me, um, when I, I grew up in Brooklyn, so you know, in elementary school, probably 99% black. We had like that one white kid who just, you know, happened to live in the hood or whatever. And then you go into junior high maybe 98.8% .8 black. We had like two or three white kids, kind of lived in the area, like one of those borderline areas, black, white, what have you. You know, they had this running joke, like every school had a white mic, regardless of where you went, right? <laughs> and then, um, now, what was different for me than my friends, a lot of my friends still went to like predominantly black high schools, whereas my, the high school I went to, it was predominantly white, uh, but if I had to give a ratio, let's say like, maybe they were 56%. So you still had a lot of black kids, but for me, it was a big shell shock going to this white high school. It was like, damn, not, you know, you're encountering white folk now. You didn't just see them on TV or, you know, it wasn't just this one white kid who kind of had a lot of hood experiences, right? And now you're starting to find out what a valley girl is and all these kind of things, right? So I say that to say, when I came into UD, well, I kind of had a four-year edge, if you will, on, I guess, adapting or acclimating to the ways of white folk. Of course, the percentage was a lot higher, but for my, uh, for my peers who came in, who came from schools that were 99% black, it was a big chef shop. I don't know what high school, you know, kind of demographics y'all came from, but start off by answering, and this, we're gonna go down a lot on three eventually, but start off by answering, was it a shell shop to come into this school that was predominantly white, that I don't know what the percentages are, but you know, I had a whole lot of white folk and a little bit of black folk. How, first of all, was that a shell shock for you then? Two, what kind of, I guess, issues or adverse things did you come into contact with being a black woman at this white school? Jen? So I went to predominantly white schools my entire life. Okay. Um, I lived in neighborhoods growing up as a kid where the most black people I saw in a day were in my house. Okay. Um, <laughs> literally, that's a true story, wow. okay? Now, I really just registered what she said. Right. Um, so it, there, there, was a, there was a mixture for me uh, coming to UD. So I feel like uh, part of that 
was really connecting to the black community, but I felt like a lot of my personal experience was trying to be the right type of black, right? And not understanding that blackness takes on a variety of forms, right? So the, the first, uh, the, the, the running joke always was my dialect, the way that I speak, obviously I speak proper. And so it was the, oh, you're not, you're not really black. You're, you're, you're a white girl, right? Or um, you're Oreo or things of that sort. And so that, that was really difficult for me in finding myself and finding what blackness meant to me, right? And not taking on what other people felt blackness is because we were, it, we, we have a, there's a, a myriad of experiences um, with being black. I don't know how to cornrow. I'm, I'm okay. still upset about that, but I'm, guess what? I'm still black, even though I don't know how to cornrow, right? I, I am still black, even though I don't know how to cornrow. Um, so, you know, th that was definitely um, an experience for me. And then I think, so being a student, I also worked at a PWI. And so then I, I went on the other side of really seeing these students who were experiencing these microaggressive behaviors in, in the classroom and wanting to protect them from that and, and learn how to, to deal with that type of environment. So it, it really was mixed. Some parts of it was really great um, within, my, within the black community, but parts of it were hard within the black community when we try to define what blackness looks like and then dealing with white people. Mm -hmm. That was also difficult. It had a give and take. So I would say both. It was, it, it was definitely changing. Joy? So my experience growing up was that I was always in majority white classrooms and um, throughout all of the schools there was times when I would be the only in my particular class. Mm -hmm. um, but I will tell you is that I did a summer program for fame up here in Newcastle County and my mind was blown because I was kind of used to preacher, teacher, undertaker kind of deal. You know, that was how growing up my, my mom, like was an educator, all her siblings were educators. If you got yeah. your degree, right. you were like preacher, preacher, teacher, undertaker, business owner. Mm -hmm. But I came, I will never forget rolling up to fame. Like that's your mom, that's your dad, like judges, lawyers, benzes, you know, mm -hmm. and black folks were getting out of them. And I was like, wow, yes. this is happening mm -hmm. up here. I, I just remember being so in awe of just the numbers and seeing that because I just wasn't used to that in Southern Delaware from you know, my perspective. So when I came to UD, and what I even had at home was I may have a larger world perspective, but then I always had that come home to your neighborhood and come home to your family, that inner circle and that insulation to kind of reaffirm you and validate you and lift you up. And that was the same experience at UD. Now, once you got on the bus and you got to main campus, you may feel very swallowed up. But once you got back home to the towers, mm -hmm. things felt very intimate and very caring, and you knew that you had support. And so it was kind of like those two experiences really mirrored each other. And I think the takeaway from a self-care perspective is that you have a safety net or you have a happy place to come back to. People who are going to hug you and you know tell you it's okay and help you work through things um, when the world has kind of beaten you up or caused you to question yourself um, that can kind of help you get back out there and do it all again tomorrow. One of my experiences at University of Delaware that helped to also give, you know, a sister circle was that I pledged a sorority. And so then all, you know, very rapidly, there becomes a group and a sisterhood 
you know, within a black community, within a larger campus, that again, although, let's keep it real, sororities serve up some trauma too, um, <laughs> also, you know, really serve to, to anchor and ground you during that experience. Erica. Um, so, I grew up predominantly white community, neighborhood, high school, and then both the colleges that I went to were predominantly white. And just what you said, there were many classes, even if it was like a 150 student classroom, I would be the only black person in there. And sad to say, because that's how I grew up, I was used to it. I didn't even really expect to see other black people in it. If I did, it was like, oh wow, that's cool. Um, however, I'm gonna take it to Brittany, because I also did not stay on campus, clearly because I had her, but she grew up and you came to her graduation you saw yeah. 400 kids in the graduating class and there were only six black kids in that entire graduating class shell shot and the crazy thing was there was only two of them were actually african-american some were you know biracial kids one was from trinidad and things like that but anyway all that being said Brittany's experience she you know had applied to hampton because she kept saying you know what Mommy, I think I need, you know, like an HBCU experience. I need to go where people look like me and, and I'm not, you know, being judged because her hair can look like this one day or then she'll flat iron the next day. Going to high school, you know, girls are, is that a weave? Is that fake? Is that a wig? And she's like, I'm, I'm tired of that. Why can't I wear my hair different ways? Like I need to go somewhere where people understand, you know, what it is to have hair like this. And I know hair is, you know, that seems a little silly, but for women, no, it's not mm -hmm. when you're talking about hair. So, you know, the, this, she is in Virginia for school and absolutely loves it because the dynamic is completely, you know, it's completely different. Obviously, there's more blacks than there actually are whites. And she's like, I'm not used to this. Like, this is a whole different world for me. Um, so, you know, again, kind of saying what everybody says, you know, it is kind of like what you make it. My experience was different because, like I said, I was used to it, but I'm glad that she's getting the actual other side to know, yes, you know, people that look like me but are also educated as well, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a huge plus. Mm -hmm. So Great. So now you actually provided a great segue. Um, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, I mean, they're all kind of tied in, but I say we kind of talked a lot about like the, the mental aspect, the emotional aspect, what have you, right? But you just hit something out. You hit a point that I wanted to hit on anyway, when we talk about in the society or when it comes to this media, we're subject to, I guess, what some people have deemed Euro European beauty standards, if you will, um, and, and images. So whether it's like the blonde hair, blue eyes, or the 12 pound model walking down the runway, <laughs> you know, um, things of that nature to where um, I feel like it's been pushed so much, you know, into the faces of everyone out here. You got to a point where you found whether it was black girls or, or young black women or, you know, adult black women, they were kind of trying in, in some ways, if you were to conform to what we call these beauty standards, right? Um, they want to try to get the, I guess, the long flowy, what they consider the long flowy, oh God, I hate saying this, good hair. <laughs> like what you see, or they want to try to, they feel like maybe their hips are too big or they're, you know, they're too thick, if you will, or, you know, you've been seeing in our celebrities, they start trying to like get these lip reductions or facelifts and all these things. I guess skin bleaching became a thing, they said at one point in time. And, you know, from, again, from the outside looking in, I'm just a, just a caveman just wandering this world. I feel like it looks like the, the, the impact was more on women in terms of trying to make these adjustments. Like me, I've never felt like I had to look like 
I don't know, Brad Pitt, or, you know, or Tom Cruise, yeah, pick these, you know, white sex symbols. Like, I guess if I felt like I had to get, I was like, damn, I got to try to get muscles. Like, I don't know, I don't, well, I'll say Idris Elba today, I don't know who the guy was back in my day, maybe Mr. T muscles or something. But I was never like, I got to be like um, Hulk Hogan. Who, who, by the way, when I was a child, I thought he was black until I learned it was just a real good team. Like, that was almost like finding out Santa wasn't real. Today. I was like, get the hell out of my parents. I was like, what you mean? How that man is black? And my mother, she was so ashamed of me. But that's neither here nor there. So, and you know, to the point where, you know, Erica's daughter's going through what I'm sure a lot of you have gone through. Oh, was that a weave? Or how did your hair get like that? Or, or if you rock it natural, they'll be like, oh, it's nappy. You don't have a comb or, you know, things of the nature. So, so um, somebody opened it up from, you know, how society, even like the Barbies, you know, the Barbie dolls mm-hmm. are good. And then, you know, all of that, we didn't have like really, I guess y'all didn't have the black Barbies, I guess, came out later in life or, you know, all kinds of things. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about the impact of, I guess, how media has played a part in negatively impacting the black woman's psyche, if you will, and or maybe some things that you've actually gone through, it's traumatic things you've actually gone through with that. And then again, how do we get on the road to changing that? Now, I'm going to start with Tracy because I know, you know, time is running short on you. So we want to get your input, you know, before we get you out of here. But yeah. So I've had more problems um, within the past, I've been natural probably for maybe 10 years. I've had more issues with my hair as an adult than I did as a child. So, you know, you talked about um, Barbies and things like that. I ain't had no Barbies because they (laughs) look like me. And and I did, like I remember, um, you know, Santa would bring whatever and I'd be like, no, I don't want no Barbies because I I didn't like Barbies, like Mm -hmm. I I didn't. So now Cabbage Patch, and I remember like searching all of Toys R Us's, I think up and down Delaware, which is not very big, to find a brown skin cabbage patch. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so, um, but I've had more issues with people having a problem with my hair um, when I was now than ever. Um, whether it be when, you know, I completely, when I first went natural, people had an issue with it to, when I decided to do the big chop, mm-hmm. um, people had an issue with me cutting my hair. They wanted to know why I cut my hair. None of your business why I cut my hair. It's cut my hair. Like, it is what it is. Um, to, um, you know, like I'll, I dye my hair. I got cornrows um, last summer, and people had a, a fit with that. You mean the Kim Kardashian boxer braids? Yeah. <laughs> uh, she cut her eyes so hard, y'all. I wish y'all could see this. <laughs> Some days my hair would be straight and 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 you know even just the conversation people say oh my gosh you change your hair all the time like what's wrong with me you know one day my hair would be straight one day it'd, it'd be you know in cornrows one day it, it's like this it's curly and, and you know maybe all over the place but that's who we are and um you know so 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 i think you know i've, I've had to wear a uniform again for most of my adult life and, and even before then, in the military, I've always had to look like everyone else. But the only thing that defined me as being different would be my hair. And, and so I, I look at that, and that's what, I, I love being an individual. I, I love, you know, not, not so much being a rebel, but I, I like the fact that I can be an individual 
um, even in a uniform state, just simply by changing my hair or something like that. But, um, you know, I, I think we're always told and, and taught you have to look a certain way. Um, my dad's side of the family was much more prim and proper than my mom's side of the family. And, and it goes back to, you know, education and, and et cetera, and, and maybe having a little bit more money. But, you know, it was always, you, you make sure you have shoes on, make sure you wear stockings, make sure your hair is neat and in place, and make sure you have lipstick on, and you don't put lipstick on at the table, and all these different things, all these, all these things that I, I didn't care about. Like, I was literally, I was a tomboy. Um, but I knew how to dress up and I knew how to act when I was supposed to. But I appreciated my mom's side of the family who just let me be. And they let me run around barefoot. They let me, you know, put a hat on. They let me, you know, hang out with, on the farm with, with my grandfather. Like, they just let me be an individual. And, you know, I, I don't think I had that as much. But, again, in high school and, and again in college, it was all about your image and, you know, that's how you find your man and that's how you define yourself and that's that's how you get a job, you know, is, is by you have to look like the person that you sit across the table from when you're interviewing. But um, I think now I'm, and, and I, I preach this, that still be an individual, um, doesn't matter what your hair looks like, doesn't matter what your image is. And that's why, again, I, I tell my daughter this, you are beautiful just the way that you are. The only thing I, I do stress to my daughter, my daughter is you know much heavier than I am. She's not shaped like me, but I tell her to simply be healthy. And I and I tell her and explain to her and I try to show her ways to be healthy. And that's it, like that's that's it, just be healthy. You don't have to be a size two. You don't have to buy be a size double zero, which was never a thing. I don't know where the heck they came up with that, but. Um, white lanes, there's white people, white people in. <laughs> but, but you know, just, just be yourself and be an individual, and your personality will show, and and people will, will again gravitate and love you simply for that. I don't I I don't adhere to the European standard by it. I simply don't. I have to go put my uniform on later tonight, and my hair's gonna be just like this. <laughs> yeah. And and it's gonna be within regulation, but my hair's gonna be curly just mm. like this. And again, people don't like it, but deal. <laughs> It, it's, as long as I'm within policy, that's it. As long as I am, and, and their policies are outdated, and you know, I, I will say that, but, but that's our fault. That's our fault as employees for not, um, for not changing them. You, know, mm. you can't have the same standards you had 20, 30 years ago from the 80s. But anyway, um, yeah, you, I, I am who I am, okay. and I said what I said. Cool. <laughs> now, Shajana, maker of your own beauty products, uh, skincare products, if you will. Um, again, you know, I've known you for a while, so Pan-African, deep about the culture, into the culture, cultural standards, body image, everything for the betterment of the culture. So I gotta imagine, it, something just must, something comes on when somebody says something like Eurocentric beauty standards or European beauty standards, and you know, you need to look like this versus looking like this. Your hair should look like this versus looking like this. Or so you see things like um, where, what, just recently New York just passed a law banning employers from discriminating against, you know, folk for the wearing their hair, the way it comes out of there. 2019 that happened, y'all. It's only March. So now I gotta hear what, you know, where you stand on that. And what kind of effect 
does that have on you? Does it anger you? Does it make you sad? Does it disappoint you? Well, first, um, that's funny because the actual T-shirt that I have on today says, F your European standards of beauty. See how the universe works? It literally <laughs> says that. Um, I'm really big on T-shirts that say very explicit things. Mm -hmm. So um, this is how I feel. Like, I don't subscribe to European standards of beauty, and I am grateful, so grateful, that I grew up in a household with a father actually i mean my mother was there too but my father was adamant about making sure that i knew that i was beautiful the way that i was and because of that i never got a relaxer in my whole entire life ever okay. in my life and even uh, with straightening my hair it was minimal um now of course i played with wigs and weaves and all of that but it was always important to me to remain natural even when I became a teenager and I could kind of rebel against what my parents wanted from me, I didn't because they ingrained that in me. It's literally a part of me where I have never had any problems with my skin color, my lips, my nose, my hair. I'm grateful for that because most black women can't say that. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know, I'm just so grateful for that. So European standards of beauty, had it. It has a lot to do with media, um, and it has a lot to do with history. So if you think about, you know, enslaved Africans brought here, and our masters were white, and, you know, their wives were looked at as prim, proper, delicate, special, and we were looked at as women that could be raped and thrown around and sold and we're just used to breed. We're looking at the white woman like, because we're still feminine, so regardless of what anyone thinks, our enslaved African um, ancestors, female ancestors, were feminine. They might have been working in the fields and doing the same thing that men were doing, but there's, there's an innate part of us that's just feminine. So they're looking at this white woman getting the treatment that they want to, like they want to be soft sometimes, they want that. So when you have generations that are, look, that are looking at white women receiving the treatment that they want, you begin to think that you need to be like that to get that treatment. You need to look like that, you need to dress like that, you need to act like that. And so I don't blame our people, our, our, you know, our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, I don't even blame them for being the way that they were and passing that down to us because it's common sense. It's, it, it's like you want the best for yourself. You want the best for your family. Of course, it's not healthy for us to want to be like somebody else, but it makes sense mm -hmm. why they were doing that because you want that better life. You want that better treatment. So I totally get it. But... Along those lines, I want to take it even beyond the Eurocentric beauty standards and talk about beauty standards that just are not African-American women standards. And by that, I mean, in my life, I have encountered a lot of men that have come to me and asked me, where am I from? And I'm like, I mean, they could, I, I could see them at CGI Fridays on 202. Mm -hmm. And they come to me like, where are you from? Wilmington, Delaware? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, the city that we're in right now. You're not from an island? 
No, I'm not. And the disappointment on their face, it's like, oh, you're just a black girl. Okay, well, let me just move on because I thought you was from Trinidad or I thought you was from Jamaica or whatever. And that's not cool because I think we do focus a lot on European standards of beauty, but it's something about being other than black from the United States of America that is just beautiful and exotic. Why are we beautiful and exact? You know what I mean? Like, why can't we be beautiful? Why can't you look at us as, as this this gem? Why is mm-hmm. it that the white woman has to be a gem, the Caribbean woman has to be a gem, a woman from somewhere other than here? And it's our brothers here. Like, brothers, you was born here on this mm-hmm. land right here. Your parents were born here. Your grandparents were born here. But you're looking for a black woman from somewhere else, or you're looking for a white woman. Mm-hmm. So you know, those set our standards of beauty too. You know, the, the African-American women that want the curly hair so that they can look Dominican or they right. can look like they're mixed with Spanish or whatever. It, it, it's really detrimental to us, but I get it. You know what I mean? Like, I understand it because I never want to berate my people or women, you know, in my culture. So I totally get it. But we do need to work on that because it's detrimental to our self-care because we end up doing things that make us sick in mm-hmm. order to fit a standard of beauty that we don't need to fit. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just like with relaxers, the chemicals and relaxers, I mean, the fact that we even put them in our hair is just, it's like, you, and you can even tell a woman what's in a relaxer, mm-hmm. she's gonna use it anyway. Our women are bleaching their skin at astronomical rates do you know the ingredients in those products? Like this literally is cancer causing and we don't care because we're trying to fit these standards. So it's literally detrimental to our self-care practices. Okay, so now that brings me to this question which kind of goes back to something Jen said earlier about what she would tell her 15-year-old self. And it was something to the effect of self-validation. You don't really need, I guess it says you don't need others to validate you if you will. So now when I hear what you're saying, and then it's like, does this create, for lack of a better term, a lose-lose situation for black women in the sense, now since we brought the men into it a little bit, in a sense, okay, you said, because, you know, like how a lot of our men are looking at, you know, women here, is women out there doing certain things so they can try to fit that look. But then if we go by what Jen says about, you know, you see your beauty or what have you, then a person with that mindset would be like, well, I'm not gonna go flex and you know fake and try to front and get these looks just to appease to some man. And then one would then say, "Well, that's great. You stand on that. You know, you hold that down." But will that now adversely affect her finding love or finding a man, if you will? That's why I ask: Is it I lose do, lose in a sense? I do want to. I'm not gonna give a long answer for this. I do want to make it very clear that black men are still marrying black women more than they're marrying other races. So they still find us beautiful, but they still still are indoctrinated. That's not what Facebook told me. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, no, no. Black men are still marrying black women. They're in relationships with black women. So we do have the opportunity to be who we are. And if we 
as a group, if we just continue to embrace our natural beauty, they don't have a choice but to jump on mm -hmm. board because they do still want us. Mm -hmm. um, it's not always about how we look. So I just want to let, because a lot of, when I, I didn't want to say that men are looking at other women as right. if that's all they're looking at. No, mm -hmm. they're still looking at us. Okay. Yeah, to be clear. Right. Jen, since that was, you know, I kind of jumped off your statement. So I'll, I'll, I'll say this, and I think that uh, in, in coining the term internalized oppression, and understanding that that's something that a lot of black people deal with, not just men, um, it's, it's women too, right? Because I've had those kind of standards projected on me. I've had, anyone that knows me knows that I love everything outdoors. I love the beach, like that's my favorite place to be. And so because I like being at the beach, I'm already a dark skinned woman, my skin uh, gets darker in the summertime. And I've had people say to me, oh, well you need to, stay out of the sun, you know, because you're going to get darker than you, than you are, you are. You don't want to get too black, right? Which is crazy. Now, and to your point, uh, too, Nitty, I want to say this. If, in, in terms of the double-edged sword, if I have to change what I feel makes me beautiful, whether it's my hair, how my body looks, whatever, for, to appease a man, then that's not the man for me. Yep. Okay, so that's fine. That's Trash. fine. I'd rather know that up front, mm -hmm. right? In terms of your, because I definitely dated guys that have been like, oh, you know, you would look so much prettier if you straighten your mm -hmm. hair. That's not the guy for me because mm -hmm. my hair is going to look like this, right. 99%, um, which my, my hair is naturally kinky, 99% um, of the time. But you, so in living in your authenticity, the people that are also authentic are going to connect to what you present. And if they don't, those are not your people. And that's okay, right? You let them go mm -hmm. and, and you move on. And, and for me, even unpacking this, because that's the downside in me growing up in predominantly white neighborhoods and, and schools and so on and so forth. And I played volleyball as well. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time accepting my shapely body. I'm very curvy, right? Where I wanted to be thinner. I wanted to have a gap in between my thighs. I wanted this, that, and the other. And, tr and, and accepting that those, those thighs and hips ain't going nowhere, girl. Okay. I don't care how much cardio you do. I don't care how much, how much you cut back on your food. They're not going anywhere and you need to be okay with that. That took me time mm -hmm. up until recently in my adulthood. So I've been, I've been natural for seven years now, but it wasn't until 2018 where I finally took my first professional headshot with my kinky hair, right? Because I still felt like even though I was natural for special occasions, for events, right, I should straighten it. Even though I live a, a, a natural lifestyle where I finally said, listen, my hair is professional hair, right? The way that it grows out of my head yeah. is okay and this is appropriate for the workplace, so I'm gonna do a headshot that is with my natural hair. And so that took me time to unpack that, even within my, my own family, right? Where my mom's like, well, I like it when you have definition, but not when it's nappy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, right? And this is my mother who right. loves me very much and will walk <laughs> the, the earth for me, mm -hmm. having to unpack her internalized oppression in terms of what my hair should be like and you should straighten it for a job interview and you know, you don't go with your, your hair in that way, make sure that it's neat, and so that to do that work, that was on my end. I had to do that work and, and kind of demystify what beauty is and, and, and what it is not, and it's not meeting Eurocentric standards of beauty. Her mama gonna be like, I know she ain't talking about me on that podcast. <laughs> no, you ain't put me out there like that. Let's go down to Joy. I do think if we're really honest with ourselves as, as black women, and we, if 
we, you know, light the candle and turn the lights down low and get really true with ourselves, this is something that, that hurts. This fear that we are just naturally not as beautiful, not regarded in that way. And anytime, you know, in this day and age, it is now legal and accepted to date interracially. It's something we see a lot. But anytime you see that dialogue, social media or in barbershops or at the barbecue, there's always this dialogue and resistance around black women, right? We're, we're still afraid. Everybody else is dating whoever they want to, and we're afraid. And if we really talk about why, I think it's because we're afraid that we're not going to be regarded as beautiful by anyone else other than the black man. And, you know, that's why we're like, Ugh. you know, if you're black, I'm black like your mama, and you have to think I'm beautiful because, because of that relationship. And it almost causes panic among some of us because we're just not as confident that that's how the world sees us, even when we try to see ourselves in that way. And I think it's really, really important that we have to keep fighting that, whether it's internalized depression or media message, that we have to keep fighting that, that we are beautiful, different can be beautiful, but that we are beautiful in our unique ways. And I've even tried to be really intentional with my words when I'm complimenting friends' daughters, particularly, I have certain words that I like to use for black boys too, but not even to call them beautiful, but to also call out other words. Like, you know, she's such a leader, a little lady leader, look at her. So that while she knows she's beautiful, she knows that there's so many other things that are just as important. Because we have to affirm the beauty, but we have to make sure it's bigger than beauty. Because the other thing is beauty is fleeting. Um, and beauty changes and things change about you and you, you can't let that then kind of affect your self-esteem and who you are. And you know, that's a difficult thing, whether you're four or 40 or, or 72. Erica? So, I didn't realize this until I became an adult of how offensive it was for people to always ask, oh, what are you mixed with? And it's funny that a lot of you guys said that because when I was younger, it was like, even though I would just say, you know, I'm black, am I mixed with things? Absolutely. But I'm glad even though I kind of wasn't, maybe it was subconscious to just say I'm black. I literally today, I, I love saying I am black. Even when I get the questions of, well, what do you mean? Oh, well, your skin's this color, or your hair does this. Well, what do you put in your hair? Nothing. I wake up, this is what it is. You know, I, I don't have to put something in it to make it look this way. Um, but just the comments that people can, can make when they're, when they're asking a question, again, not necessarily understanding how offensive it is. I was just in the Dominican Republic a few months ago, and, you know, people from that island automatically assumed, I was them, come up speaking Spanish, you know, or whatever the case may be. And there was a couple sitting next to us and they were like, oh, are you Dominican? You just don't speak the language? And I'm like, no, I'm like, oh, well, why, your hair, look at your hair. Why can't I just have curly hair? Why is it that I always have to be mixed with white? Or, oh, you're Native American, or, oh, you're half Spanish. No, I'm black and just leave it at that. Um, and even for, you know, today with people getting the butt injections and the lip injections and, oh, I need my hips to go this way. And I'm like, wow, all you're pretty much doing is transferring yourself into what black women already have. You know, I appreciate my curves. Now that's all you see is, oh, embrace your curves. We've always had that. But again, we go back to that's like the Eurocentric way. But no, that's what we were born with, what we have, what we represent. But now everybody is trying to look like that. So again, I've always embraced the fact of, you know, being black, whatever the case may be, but it's crazy too, because my daughter goes through that. She's, you know, a darker skin than I am. 
and at an early age, when I, I had to check it real quick, because she was asking questions, well, how come, you know, you're, you're lighter than me and, and I'm darker? And I'm like, why is color even a factor at this age? How do you even understand or recognize that? You know, we're brown skin, we, we are black. But the fact that society puts so much emphasis on color or hair or whatever the case may be, it's ruining our children. You know, so if you don't have a good relationship with your child or being able to, you know, if you don't embrace it yourself or are comfortable with yourself, how are you going to explain that to the younger generations of love yourself no matter what you look like, what your hair looks like, no matter what your shape is, if you're not confident within what you have? Because we're looking at what society, you know, has mm -hmm. out there or what, you know, social media presents as that's pretty much raising our kids, basically. Mm, yeah. And it's sad. All right. Now, switching up gears real quick, um, one thing that we, you know, I've that I personally have been seeing, you know, in various news reports or just sources outside of your mainstream media, if you will. Shout out to, now that's one good thing about the digital age, you know, you have access to information that you normally, for lack of a better term, didn't have ready, you know, readily available access to. And one of these things I've been learning is about um, the treatment or lack thereof of black women as it pertains to the medical health industry to your doctors, whether it's like someone who's, who's, who's bearing a child, they got to worry about not being properly cared for during that, you know, that process, or even during the childbirthing process itself. Hence why they, you know, I'm starting to learn a lot of women are starting to look into birthing their children outside of hospitals and with midwives and, and you know, things of that nature, to where if black women are saying they have certain symptoms or something's not right. They know their bodies and something's not right. And a lot of times doctors are kind of waving it off, if you will, and saying there's nothing wrong with you, or they're not even trying to prescribe certain tests that may be the test that can save a life, if you will. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's attacking our black women, right? How, who do, if you can't turn to your doctor <laughs> for your physical health, then who do black women have? Who would they turn it to? I, again, because that has to be traumatic to, you know, as a, let's say if you've been fortunate enough and this hasn't happened to you, or this hasn't happened to you yet, but you've seen it, and you know, how can you then trust? How do you how do you find the trust for a doctor? And and again, how how do you work through that? And I'm gonna start with you, Shaw, because I know again, you know, when it comes to these matters of health and wellness, you, I know you've always been like super organic or super. We gotta do like y'all think you might be the you and your husband might literally might be the first people that I've known personally who were like breaking down the, the, the ills of toothpaste even. Like that toothpaste that y'all be using, da, 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 da. I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, you know, I was like, that's just vegan talk. They don't know anything. And I'm like, oh, maybe they had a point. <laughs> so I need to get your thoughts on that. So, um, like I said in my intro, I have lupus. And I have not had it for that long. I was diagnosed with lupus after I had my daughter um, I had her in August of 2017, and it has been a journey since then. So, of course, I am all about natural everything, but, um, and I have been for a long time. Like, I actually became a vegetarian when I was, like, nine, and my mom didn't understand, and it was just one of, it started off as one of those things that a little kid does, like, a lot of kids actually decide at some point, I don't want to eat meat anymore. It's a dead animal. I feel so bad. But then they grow out of it. I never grew out of it. So 
I have always been a little conscious about certain things ever since I was little. Um, so I have lived a pretty healthy lifestyle, but um, I did develop uterine fibroids um, when I was in maybe my mid-20s. So I did a lot of natural things to shrink my fibroids, and they did shrink, but they were still so large because if you shrink fibroids naturally, it takes time. Um, I didn't have the time because they were so large. Every time I had a cycle, I would lose so much blood that it was detrimental to my health. So even though I was able to shrink them, there was no way that they would shrink fast enough for me to be healthy. So I ended up getting surgery, which I was completely against. I mean, it took probably six months of me being extremely ill from these fibroids before my family convinced me it's okay to go under the knife. Like, we know you do everything natural, but it's okay. So because I had to do that, when I had my daughter, I had to have a C-section. It would be too dangerous for me to deliver her vaginally. So I'm like, cool, cool, cool. I'm not okay with it, but this is my daughter. I'm having my first child. We're going to do this. Um, and I remember when I went to my doctor and I said, I have agreed to have a C-section, but this is the procedure that I want to go down. And I explained to the doctor how I felt it was important for babies to come through the birth canal and come out of the vagina. The fluids and everything that they are washed with coming out helps them to combat illness and sickness and things like that. I said, okay, so if I can't do that, I understand that doing that would risk my life. Like there's a huge chance that I would just bleed out and, and you know, die in the process. So what I wanna do is, and then I explained everything to her, and part of what I wanted to do, um, and this is something that a lot of women who have to have C-sections do, you can get sterile gauze inserted into your vagina and before the C, so it would go in maybe like two hours before your C-section, and then they can take it out right before they cut you open to remove the baby. And what you do is you take the gauze out, and it is covered in everything that that baby would have gone through. And you can immediately wipe the baby's whole face, nose, mouth, ears, everything down in that. And it's not ideal, but it's an option. And I explained that to her, and she looked at me, and she was like, well, that's not necessary. Mm. And I was like, oh, is it, is it something that you cannot do or is this your personal opinion that it's not necessary? And in the end, it was done and she did have to get permission to have it done. Um, but the fact that she dismissed me at first was like really concerning. So I had my daughter, we, go, we do what we do. I was able to do that. I was able to have my essential oils in the room. Everything was the way I wanted it, but it wasn't as easy as I felt it should have been. I should have, there should have been, the only, I guess the only thing that she should have said to me was, I don't have the authority to say that that can happen at this time. Let me go speak to whoever is in charge of the operating room. And that's because the doctor doesn't have that say, and I do understand that. Okay, I have my daughter, and two weeks out, I start having severe joint pain. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And it's, it got so bad, so I went back to my gynecologist, and I'm like, yo, I, was, I had fevers and everything. And I said, you know, what is going on? And I actually saw her and another doctor that was in the office 
because I really needed to find out what was wrong. And they blamed it on breastfeeding. And I accepted that because I didn't know any better. And so I'm like, okay, I know that some women, when they breastfeed, you do have joint pain, you do have these different things that happen, and then it goes away. So I go home and I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, eh, this is really bad. Like, I don't think that's what it is. And I went back, and they literally brushed me off in a way that they didn't take my pain seriously. Like, you don't hurt as bad as you say you hurt. And let me tell you, I literally could not lift my daughter. I couldn't change her diapers. I needed help in and out of bed. So that's severe pain. And I went to another doctor. Dismissed me. Like, you'll, you'll recover. You're still recovering from childbirth. And I'm like, how am I? This, this comes from childbirth? And I eventually found a doctor that I had went to for something totally different. I had swollen glands, and I thought that I was catching a cold or something, and I wanted to treat it so that my baby didn't get sick. And it was that doctor who checked me out and was like, you know, you don't have, it doesn't seem to be a virus, doesn't seem to be bacteria, yada, yada. And when I went to get off of her table, I was in so much pain. I was like, ugh. And she looked at me and she said, what's wrong? And I told her, and literally this was the end of my appointment with her, so we were leaving the room. And she had already opened the door, we were going out, and she closed the door. And she sat me back down, and she said, wait a minute. And she started looking at my skin, asking me, when did these marks come? I said, well, when I was pregnant, and I was told that that comes with pregnancy with black women. Well, when did this joint pain start? After I had my daughter, and I was told that comes with breastfeeding. And then she said, and your glands are swollen. And she was like, this sounds like an autoimmune issue. And when she said that, I was like, I was so healthy. Like, I, I, I didn't understand that. And I immediately got angry because I did get the test and everything came back positive and we found out that I had lupus. But that could have been figured out from the gate right. if those doctors would have listened to me. And it's not like I only went once or only went twice. I kept going because I knew something was wrong with me. And they dismissed me. Now, I'm not a white woman, so I don't know how they would have treated a white woman. But I have read enough to believe that they do this to black women. They look at us as if our ability to withstand pain is astronomically better than somebody else. So when we're in there talking about pain, it's like, oh, you can, you can handle that. You're okay. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not okay, you know, and, and I, I, I've experienced that in a severe manner because my lupus has literally almost taken my life twice. Wow. And I just found out about it in 2017, so it's not like I've had it for 10 years. I feel like there's a lot of things that can be prevented with black women if doctors took us seriously and understood that we know our bodies better than y'all do. Y'all know about some book knowledge, We've been with ourselves for 30, 40 years. We know, listen to us. So, I, you know, it, it's serious. There have been doctors that have come out and spoken out about how they discriminate against us. And I don't know how we can change it. I don't know because this is all new information coming out and new experiences that people are talking about. But it's definitely something that we have to work on as black women in the medical field, definitely. 
so medical, the medical field um, is, is, you know, where I spend my professional time during the day. Mm -hmm. And there's particularly diabetes and cancer, which, you know, are disproportionately affect African Americans. And there's three things that I see pretty consistently. One is the fact that we have traditionally had disproportionate lack of access to healthcare, and that has become like a trauma that we bring forward in terms of not going to the doctor or trying to save visits or save the copay or figure it out and not go. Um, and one of the reasons that also maybe we don't go is the second point, which is mistrust of medical practitioners. And a lot of it is well-founded. The Tuskegee experiment is real. Um, but as such, we don't necessarily get involved in clinical trials. So we're not, doctors don't always even have a good idea of how certain medicines work in our people because we're underrepresented in clinical trials or we often come to the doctor late, whether it's due to lack of access or a culture of not going. So a lot of our conditions are far more gone um, when we even arrive to the doctor. And then this last thing that I see is cultural competence. And you brought this up, Erica, when you were talking about cultural competence in therapy and being able to connect with your patients. But for over 10 years, I promoted insulin. And I would know my own family members, people that look like me would go into the doctor's office and find out they had diabetes and there would be a scary number and the doctor would talk to them about what they needed to do and they'd go to a nutritionist who would tell a 60 year old woman who went to a segregated high school that you're not gonna eat dark meat chick chicken anymore. You know, you're gonna eat chicken breast. And that's my mama who just didn't have the palate for that. So they would go in and listen to the doctor and listen to the nutritionist and walk out and really change nothing because they really didn't connect with them culturally or have that understanding. You can't tell you know, a Latino man that you have diabetes and you're not gonna do rice and beans anymore. Culturally, that's not gonna be effective or something that they can really go home and do. Or you can't necessarily weigh a black woman and you know, tell her what the BMI should be, <laughs> and you know, kind of mark it off on the chart. Yeah, we discussed it. You're not it. Oh well, <laughs> you should lose weight um, without discussing all those other factors, or at least bringing some sensitivity to it that says, while I understand you may believe yourself to be big boned, <laughs> there's work to be done. But to just kind of treat numbers and you know, apply treatment blindly or just apply it without really having some cultural competence really doesn't get the job done for our people. And I see it all the time, um, both in diabetes and even now in cancer. And what's worse is I see the negative impact it has on families because they don't connect with their practitioner. So they pay the copay and they go and they get the news, but it's really hard for them to truly institute the life changes that they need to, to be healthier. So would would more black doctors be kind of a stepping stone, if you will, to improving that? Mm -hmm. Or, in the order to not ask this, because it almost, I, I started thinking about earlier when Shaw was speaking about the HBCU experience versus the PWI experience, and she said something to the effect that, well, if you go to an accredited HBCU, the system is kind of the same, if you will. So then the reason I ask that is, well, let's say we get more black doctors, which I'm not saying would not be a, you know, a great step in the right direction. I'm saying it actually is. But then do we, will we have to worry about if they fall under this quote-unquote system, if you will, and thus maybe we might be subject to the same treatment or lack thereof that we're facing, that, you know, well, we, that women have necessarily faced um, that we learned about over time? I think 
black doctors, yeah, that's important. But it is still the same medical system. Mm. But the difference is black doctors came from black families. Okay. So I think the relationship to their patient is different. So let's say it's a black male doctor who is treating a black female patient. He had a black mom and probably at that moment still has a living black mom and a black grandmother and aunt. And so he's not looking at you as other and just applying random information or medical mm-hmm. knowledge to you. He's, he can consider his mother and how he saw his mother eat and how he saw his mother's health and how he saw his grandmother's mm-hmm. health. Or even if it's a black female doctor, how she saw herself, what she went through, what her family members went through, because a lot of things that black women go through in terms of health, it we go through a lot of the same things. It, you know, like with lupus, it's more prevalent with black females. So if you have a black doctor, you're more that doctor is more likely to have a family member that has lupus than if you were to go to a white doctor. Fibroids. Black women, Latino women get fibroids. At, at a higher rate than white women. So if you're seeing a black gynecologist, there may be more of a connection because they may personally know these situations and how to discuss them with you as a fellow black person. So even though the medical system overall is kind of the same, they're learning the same things, they're treating things pretty much the same, that relationship is different and they're able to relate to you better. Okay, anybody else got anything to add to that? I would say that in the medical community, there's more and more emphasis on like genetic level prescribing and um, really understanding more genetically and what works better. And so sometimes younger doctors are more attuned to that than kind of old school doctors. But we have to push, having more black, black doctors is cool, but we have to continuously challenge practitioners um, to explain to you and talk to you and are there other therapies, you know, and what have you seen this therapy do as opposed to just listening and leaving like we really have to continue to to challenge them to learn more um regardless i would agree with that that on some level race doesn't matter and that age makes a huge difference Mm -hmm. because these younger doctors are up on it like they really they're really paying attention to more of the science behind things now and the the options that we have using that science now, whereas older doctors, they know because they have to go to these seminars and they have to do this and that, but when they were educated in it, that's not what they learned. Right. So mm-hmm. the younger sure. ones do have a leg up in that sense. Okay, so what I'm gonna do, cause I've been realizing too, I mean, I kind of knew it in my heart of hearts, but you know, sometimes you don't know until you get into it, but I'm realizing too, of course, this is something that's <laughs> it's so bad, so we're going to have to do it in more than one episode, per se. So I'm already in my head like, there's going to be a part two to this, maybe a part three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever, right? <laughs> because this is an ongoing thing for the culture. Like you said, this is something that's going to need to keep, keep being ingested and, and, and put out there for generations to come even. Let's just say it started with Nitty in the city. Ha! Not play. <laughs> but um, one more topic before we kind of start, start our wrap-up, if you will. I want to kind of, it's going to be a big year, so we're going to talk about sexuality, if you will. And earlier in the uh, in this discourse, somebody made mention to the term misogyny. So um, when we talk about, you know, sexuality, this is, um, we see it. We see it, you know, when we look at our, our let's say our, our music videos or 
the content in our songs, songs that, you know, we, we're, and we're at the point now too where maybe songs that we like, like whether it be the beat or, you know, you rock out, but then the lyrics ain't necessarily empowering to our people <laughs> or our women, if you will. Let, we ain't gonna act like we didn't just celebrate the, what was it, the 20th anniversary of Cash Money taking over for the 99 and the 2 <laughs> something like that, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm talking about even when we were quote unquote too young to be even knowing certain lyrics, like with the two live crew mm-hmm. music, stuff like that, and the kind of, that started transcending, like granted, you know, they'll tell you, but that's just music and you know, this and that and the other, but a lot of our music, we kind of take in and we have, art imitates life or we make the life in, imitate the art, if you will, because um, whether, you know, you've seen like drug dealers and stuff on the street, a lot of rappers, they weren't even living that life, but then it's like, well, now let me take this life and imitate this art, but I see it. But again, bringing it back to sexuality, um, between the images put out and let's say in our music and stuff or what have you, or even like our black exploitation films, all these things we deem classics in the culture that we love to watch, like, you know, Superfly pick any pimp, like, we love it, right? Um, even Shab, you know, Shab was running through all the women and all this and that. In addition to the fact that, you know, um, black women were kind of, I guess, to help me if I'm using the term, more hypersexualized from since way back, mm-hmm. and the slave masters just looked at them as, like you said, something they could just rape up or whatever or do as they wish. That's their property. They were all running out to the house and raping these women up and all that. And to the point where people look at the black woman and it's like, you, you know, these the bitch word comes, you know, can come to the forefront, holes, all of these different things when it comes to like speaking about a woman. Or you see these videos and it's like, this is what we are. This, or this is what they are, and this is what we expect. So even when if we go out to the club, we wanna if we go out to the club to party, men may start seeing these women, expecting to see what they see in these videos that goes on in the club and things of that nature. And I now I gotta imagine that has to have a wicked effect on the psyche of our young girls, who then become let's say young you know older girls, adolescents or what have you, who become young women who, you know, women into their 30s and 40s, and I feel like that effect probably does still carry. Not saying it can't be broken at some point, or a woman can't have an epiphany, or I don't know, an evolution, if you want to call it. But when it comes to um, sexuality and the stigmas or the taboo attached to it, because I think what happens too, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, it gets to a point where women then, because of things that are attached, uh, stigmas and taboos that are attached to it, then they're even, I guess, I'm gonna say suppressing their own sexuality or what have you, or they're worried about, you know, being looked at a certain way if they express themselves in a certain way. That that way it may not be, and I'm using this term just on basis of what people might, you know, how people might perceive things, that may not be whorish, if you will, or fast semen. All these things women have to bottle up. What I'm gonna do, I wanna point this question to Erica first because being in the field of the licensed, you know, all your credentials. You got a lot of letters in your credentials, but you know what I'm saying. A licensed and all that therapy. And you said you deal with a lot of youth. Mm-hmm. And I imagine you probably might come across your fair share of girls and, and black and brown girls at that who these are things they want to express. And they may not even have an outlet to express that, which would then be, that could create an unhealthy situation. What somebody said before, if you keep something bottled up, it's eventually exploding. Who knows what that could explode into? So explain to me, based on what you've seen, experienced, or in your practice, how sexuality has negatively um, impacted, you know, black women from the inside or young black girls from the inside. 
So I'll just use one patient that I actually saw last week. Um, and her mom had called me and said, we need to do an emergency session. I'm like, okay, what's going on? In crisis mode, um, little girl was suicidal, refusing to go to school, staying in her room. Long story short, I actually went to the home, which I know that's not what I do, but I went to her home to actually, you know, just assess everything and see what was going on. Um, she said, I'm feeling suicidal. Um, I don't want to live anymore because I can't be myself. And I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? What do you mean you can't be yourself? She said, well, you're going to be the first person that I tell. She's like, but Miss Erica, she's like, I'm gay. And I guess she was waiting for a response from me to tell her, no, like, you're wrong. No, you're not. Whatever the case is. Um, and I said, okay. She said, so I think it would be easier for me to kill myself versus having to tell my family that I like girls. Mm. And I said, so that's what all of this is about? You've been refusing to go to school, telling your mom you're suicidal, you're depressed, running away from home, all of this kind of stuff just because of your sexuality. Her answer, obviously, yes. I'm not comfortable telling her now. Obviously, you know, telling her mom there was the spiritual aspect of it. I know my mom doesn't agree with this. She's going to tell me that I'm going to hell. She'll never accept me. How am I going to be able to have a girlfriend because my mom will never accept that? So again, I can't be myself. Long story short, we did end up finally, maybe two weeks later, telling, you know, her mom sat down with her. Her mom gave the complete opposite response of what she thought, you know, she was going to give. But not just even with her family, it was also being able and being comfortable with herself to go to school and, and kind of be herself because she didn't want to continue to act like she liked boys. And she said that people were bullying her, not even necessarily bullying her, but they would say, oh, you're a tomboy or, oh, you must be gay. You know, you wear basketball shorts all the time. Um, she's like, you know, how, how do I just be myself? So again, the fact that the answer to her problem was to kill herself goes to show that, actually, I don't even know what it goes to show because it still boggles my mind with this generation being more comfortable and more accepting. And we say that, but yet people who are actually dealing with it and, and are still afraid to come out because of the negative responses or whatever they feel they might get that suicide is an option, to me means we haven't come that far. Um, and again, she's only 14. So you have a 14 year old take their life because of their sexuality. Now, also, it's funny when you were talking about, you know, music videos and all this kind of stuff. She's like, well, you know, I think people should be more accepting or if I do come out because girls are kissing girls in videos all the time and guys think that that's sexy. So, you know, maybe I shouldn't, you know, get too much backlash, you know, if, if, if this is the route that I take and I do just open up to everybody that this is, you know, who I am. Um, so I don't know, it still kind of blows my mind that yes, we have come so far, but again, when you're the person that is dealing with it and that actual coming out, and again, your option is that I want to kill myself, it's, I don't know, it's how, how far have we come, and I don't know, I, I don't even really what else to say about that except for it literally just happened, but that's a crisis that we still deal with. Yes, it might look fun and it might look great and, and it's glorified on TV, but when it's you and it's your life, None of that actually matters. So, right. we're gonna come on over to Joy. We're gonna come right down the line. What was the question again? Um, <laughs> I didn't answer it properly. <laughs> well, it was kind of broad. It's like sexuality, yeah. and that inside right. out. I think if we're talking specifically about the black woman, mm -hmm. I feel like 
you made a great point about the hypersexualization of the black woman and how I think we still are always trying to walk the fine line of wanting to be beautiful and even wanting to be sexy, but not um, also perceived as like inviting to unwanted advances. And that line is so slippery and is always moving and it's situation to situation, depending upon the hour of the night and where you are, that it's kind of hard to understand where that is. I don't really have a lot of you know trauma or experiences that have really set me back except for kind of um, being seen as almost like a, a fetish sometimes. You know, like I can even remember in high school, I was telling you I might be the only black girl in the class and like the white guy kind of wondering, you know, what it might be like to date a black girl or you know, kiss a black girl or, or what that means, um, which is kind of, you know, which is kind of a, a crazy experience to have. But I just think, you know, we do feel it that people look at us a certain way and may hypersexualize us or make us a fetish in a very unwanted manner. And it's something that has nothing to do with us as an individual. It's just because we're a black woman. Jen? Um, I think in terms of sexuality, uh, what it comes back down to is allowing people to have personal autonomy and choice. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, I think oftentimes in terms of sexuality, black women, other women as well, but particularly black women, because we can be labeled with this hypersexuality, can conform to these views that I should not be having sex at all. Let me keep my numbers as low as possible in order to be valued as a woman, when we do not place those types of um, expectations on our male counterparts. And I think that's problematic. What I would <laughs> preach is sexual responsibility because I, don't, I also don't agree with just willy-nilly giving yourself away to any and everybody that says, I want some of that. But I also put that sexual responsibility on our male counterparts as well, right? And in terms of being deliberate about the choices that you make in how or who you give yourself away to. Um, so I think that's in, in empowering women to feel okay with to feel okay in that and, and to not feel like, oh, you know, I don't want to have more than two sexual partners in my entire life, right? Um, but, but then when I get married, I need to be able to bust it open and do X, Y, and Z, which, you know, the, the dichotomy in that is just, right. the paradox in that is absolutely absurd, right? Mm -hmm. But allowing people to explore their sexuality and whatever that means to you is what's important. And knowing that that's gonna vary from person to person, but it shouldn't diminish who a woman is because of what she deliberately decides to do, right? In terms of, in terms of her sexuality. So I, I, I bring it back to that, which obviously there can be um, stereotypes that people even try to perpetuate on some biological, oh, well, you know, women, you're, the sex is on the inside, so you're letting someone go inside your body. <laughs> I, I, I mean, people say this as yeah. some type of scientific mm. fact when it's absolutely ridiculous when, okay, well, guess what? You're a man and you're putting your thing inside somebody else, like, right? So how is that any different, right? But just the way it can, we can kind of put these sexist tropes on, on, on women and having us carry the responsibility of, oh, well, we need to be sexually responsible. Being sexually responsible is for, for everyone and, and, and having choice in that and, and respecting people's choices. 
that's my that's my status. Great, Sha. Yeah. So um, this to me, this one is is a little deep. Um, what you were saying, Jennifer, about that when people talk about men, you know, you go into a woman, so they're putting their penis in the vagina. The woman is the one that bears the burden, I guess, because it's this idea that we are accepting of all this stuff if mm-hmm. we have sex with a whole bunch of different men. Mm-hmm. I think that has... <laughs> I believe that in some to some degree because I do believe that a woman's womb is a place where we create its creativity, it holds energy, it um, creates different types of energy. So to some degree... I agree with that because I do believe that we hold things from our sexual partners. But at the same time, the men are releasing when they're with women. So the men are going around having sex with everybody. It's almost, it's as, if you want to look at it as a detrimental thing, it's as detrimental at for the man as it is for the mm-hmm. woman if you're looking at it that way because maybe we're accepting, but y'all are losing. So what, you know what I mean? Like they're two different things, but they can be looked at as equally important. So that's why I I agree with it in some ways, but then I'm like, that argument doesn't really work to just put all the burden on us. It's 50-50 if you want to use that argument. Mm -hmm. Um, But outside of that, I think religion has a huge, a huge role to play in this. I think a lot of black people in this country are Christian or Muslim. And both of those religions, for those who, who actually do practice them, you know, where they can say I am Christian or I am Muslim, those religions put women in a position of modesty. And you're supposed to be a certain way because you want to be clean for your future husband. You want to, um, you don't really want to have a story to tell. You don't want to have a past because then that man's not going to want you. And in religion, you're pushed toward marriage. The idea is marriage and family, which is great because I believe that marriage, committing to someone, having children, having a black family unit, that's important. But at the same time, we are stifling women's sensuality and sexuality because we're not talking about it properly. There are ways to talk about it where you are promoting a woman or a man to not be overly promiscuous, but not tell them that sex is bad and that they shouldn't have it. There is a way to explain it so that they know that sex is a good thing, it's a natural thing. Yeah, we don't want you to be promiscuous and just give it to anybody, but that's not the end of the conversation. You need to say that and then say, but you are going to encounter people that you actually feel like you want to have sex with. And we need to start to unpack those feelings so that when that happens, you'll know if those feelings are real and if this really is someone that you should have sex with, as opposed to just telling our women, don't have sex, don't show body parts. You don't want to expose your breasts in any type of way because that is going to entice a man to want to touch you or treat you a certain way. That's not the answer. That, that, because black women are beautiful. And we have hips and we have, you know, these curves and we have breasts and we have certain things. We want to show it off like, I mean, we're beautiful, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we want to show it off to receive sexual attention. 
But we, but a lot of our women that do do that do show off their bodies in that way, they are doing it for sexual attention because no one's ever had a conversation with them about just loving your body and showing it off because you want to, because you look at yourself as a piece of art. The, all they know is showing off your body for sexuality. That's all they know because mm-hmm. no one tells them any different. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like our conversations should change. Um, religion should be left out of these types of conversations because it, it muddies the water. We need to talk about it strictly as women. We are women, we are human beings, um, we are sexual human beings, and we should have the conversation like that so that it's not one-sided. Because I don't feel like a woman who wears um, a skin-tight dress is necessarily trying to be overly sexual to receive attention. She might be wearing a skin tight dress because she looked in the mirror and was like, God damn. I look good. <laughs> <laughs> See that you know what I mean? Like, I look good. This makes me feel good. This makes me appreciate my curves. But we don't have those conversations mm-hmm. with our young girls so that they know that that's part of sensuality and sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's not all about getting attention from men, it's not all about having sex with a guy, it's not all about that. So, um, I think that's important. Those types of conversations need to change. But that can take you back to self-care too, just the fact of what you were saying, like, okay, I passed the mirror and I look good. That, that makes you feel good about yourself. You know, that is the whole reason of why you're eating healthy, why you're working out, to get those results. And then when you get them and then you're chastised for it, and then just like you said, when you hear the don't, 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 what do we want to do? Mm-hmm. We want to do what you just told us not to do. You know, and, and it's perfect that you said leave the religious aspect out of it because that conversation is really short. Don't have sex or you're going to go to hell. <laughs> what, 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 where's all the in-between and the education and all that kind of stuff? So, again, it's like the less information you have, you go seeking on your own, and that's usually when you get yourself into trouble. But, again, the more you're told not to do something, that's when you want to do it more. So the conversation does need to be opened up. All right. Well, that was great note to wrap it up on. Now, of course, on Nitty in the City, the one thing we always want to leave you on is a positive message. So anybody that comes on the show, we always had them leave a positive word for the people out there. It doesn't have to be anything super long or deep or anything like that. But, you know, even if it's just be happy, we, we always end everything off on a positive note. We're going to um, start with Shy Janelle over here, work our way down the line, and we're going to come on back to me. So without further ado, Shy, tell your people something. My positive note is just one word. Breathe. Just breathe. There you go. Jen, tell your people something. You are enough, and you can live the life that you imagine. Joy, tell your people something. Um, I would say forget perfection. I think it's the pursuit of perfection and the perception of perfection. Ooh. It being, Boss. you know, a destination is problematic, and, you know, life is a journey. And we should not be worrying about perfection. We should be living, breathing, and appreciating each moment. Erica, tell your people something. All right. So you hear I'm living my best life all the time, which is great. But just don't say it. Actually figure out what your best life is and then actually try to set goals and, and move forward to, okay, this is my best life. Just don't settle for the quotation or wearing it on a shirt. Figure out what that is for you and then try to make it happen. There you go. You know, it's your boy OG Nitty. First of all, again, 
I want to shout out my guy Gabe and I Am Art, the whole I Am Art venue for having us here today, 2411 Lancaster Avenue, Wilmington, Delaware. You can go ahead and find them and, and set yourself up there. Shout out to all our guests. But I always got to tell y'all, just remember y'all, yesterday is gone, so there's nothing you can do about that. Tomorrow's not promised. Today is what you have, and it's a gift. That's why it's called the present. So you better get up, get out, and get something. Go ahead and keep living, y'all. Remember, get busy living, because you got no alternative. You got no choice in the alternative. With that, it's your boy Nitty in the city, and we out.